Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we're going to talk about John Calvin's Institutes today. We are doing a relatively large chunk. We're on book three, and we're going to look at uh, chapters 15 all the way to the end of book three to uh, section 25. Actually, that's a lie, isn't it? Just the end of the volume that I have in front of me is actually what we're doing. So that's the end of yeah. uh, chapter 19. So it's still a relatively yeah. big we're, we're chunk. I mean, look, man, we're finishing this this first <laughs> volume. It feels pretty good. I mean, we started it back in the summer. So yeah, it, it has a taken while. a while. Yeah. yeah. We talked about maybe doing like a short break uh, before like the second half or something like that. But we'll see what we do afterwards. But this yeah. is a, an interesting section. Um, as you noted, he's really hammering like over and over on good works and so on. He's been a bit repetitious. It's probably important given his context. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. But yep. for us in the 21st century, it's like maybe pretty obvious because we're not having the same battles that he was having. Um, I don't know if we actually picked a place to read. Was there anything that you wanted to read as we begin? If not... Um, um, there were a couple of things, but you're right. I didn't. We didn't actually uh, jump. Nothing jumped out. Um, there was some cool stuff in terms of like consolation and comfort that yep. caught uh, that's near the end. But to be honest with you, I don't remember where it was. So... Why don't we just dig in and just start talking, and then if something jumps out, we can read it in, uh, in a larger well, sense. That's great. I think the first part, then, maybe just broadly to talk about, like, he uses the word merit a lot here. And I don't know that we use merit so commonly in our day-to-day. -day. We wouldn't. Roman Catholics, I'm sure, yeah. would. Um, consistent, you know, theologically informed Roman Catholics would. Um, yeah, he's making a kind of distinction between, like, works which are things that we do but we're not really like trying to like curry faith even as christians we're not saying okay the grounds of our acceptance before god are our works hmm. he's gonna say they are important they're they're indispensable for the for christian obedience um but they're even then they're not meritorious right like so he you can see right on on seven page 789 in chapter 152 when he talks about merit that he does not like the word, right? He says, <laughs> "I want to, you want, I want to avoid verbal battles." He says, but then he gets right into one. Over <laughs> I want to avoid them, and but I'll spend a thousand yeah. pages on it. Because <laughs> it goes on at length. Um, yeah, he's like, I wish. Uh, but he says, "But I wish that Christian writers had always exercised such restraint as not to take it into their head needlessly to use terms foreign to Scripture." So he's saying there are times times where we need to use words foreign to Scripture, but there yeah. are needless times to do it too. And these and particular he, ones produce great offense and very little fruit. And he says, why I ask, was there need to drag in the term merit when the value of good works could without offense have been meaningfully explained by another term. So he's saying the val the, there's value in the good works, but let's not describe it as merit. You know, they don't mm -hmm, earn mm -hmm. anything in any, in any state in your relationship with God. And one thing that he does well here, which is interesting. So he talks to these ancient writers um, up to Bernard. So not really ancient, ancient, even those who are relatively recent to him, Bernard Clairvaux. He does a good job of reading them, not for the words they use, but for the notions they're communicating. Yeah, He's even clarifying yeah. with Bernard, because remember the Reformation debates over merit are something that's really key in the 16th and 15th centuries in terms of the discussion. When you read yeah. someone prior to that, they have different debates and concerns. He's actually doing a good job of bringing that to light instead of just saying they're all bad, where I feel like right. uh, sometimes Martin Luther does that. <laughs> and it's not as helpful. Yeah, he, he is a bit more careful. Yeah, he is like, you know, Luther with the proverbial hammer on the Wittenberg church door. Probably didn't have a hammer, but yeah. he uses his hammer sometimes and his theology doesn't. Yes. He's like Nietzsche who says, I philosophize with a hammer. Luther yeah. With yeah, he theology. Needed, he needed to fill up. 
I think it's maybe worthwhile in 791 just to maybe read a little portion here. Um, and yeah, so the idea would be like, in the, you know, what he's responding to is the idea if you have merit, God gives you enough grace to kind of merit a little bit of first justification. Yeah. Yeah, it's on your own. It's still, it's grace given and all this kind of stuff. So it's it's couched in a graceful way, but it actually ends up being practically that you still have to respond to grace positively according to your, what is in you and God just accepts it. Uh, Calvin yeah. doesn't actually love that. And there's actually nope. two, two passages to read, which I think really clarify that. So on page 791, which is chapter 15, uh, in the middle of section three, he says this. This is, this is where he uses that amazing word, <laughs> usufruct. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, he does use that. that that's right, Kate, right above is where I'm reading. So um, uh, let's go here. To, to man we assign, so this is the bottom of page 790 in my edition. To okay. man we assign only this that he pollutes and contaminates by his impurity those very things which were good. For nothing proceeds from man, however perfect he be, that is not defiled by some spot. So kind of total depravity. Let the yep. Lord then call to judgment the best in human works. He will indeed recognize in them his own righteousness, but man's dishonor and shame. Good works then are pleasing to God and are not unfruitful for their doers, but they receive by way of reward the most ample benefits of God not because they so deserve, but because God's kindness has of itself set this value on them. Yeah. What unkindness it is that men are not content with that generosity of God, which bestows unearned rewards upon them that merit no such thing. And with profane ambition strive uh, that, what, uh, wait, that what comes entirely from God's munificence may seem to be credited to the merit of works. So what, he, what he's really trying to say here is look, uh, after you get saved, you do good works and God chooses to accept them, even though they're still kind of imperfect. He does yeah. that because he decides to, and because of the, uh, the work of Christ in you, they're yeah. not meriting you salvation. Everything is yours by faith, but God accepts them still. And then he really clarifies on page 794, the second thing I'll read, and then we can kind of talk about it at the bottom of 794, right above section six, we're still in chapter 15. The last few sentences right above section seven, rather, he says this. For they do not mean that by faith in Christ, there comes to us the capacity either to procure righteousness or only to acquire salvation, but that both are given to us. Therefore, as soon as you become engrafted into Christ through faith, you are made a son of God, an heir of heaven, a partaker in righteousness, a possessor of life. And by this, their falsehood may be better refuted. You obtain not, not the opportunity to gain merit, but all the merits of Christ, for they are communicated to you. Yeah. So, so he used the word merit, even though he doesn't love it, to, to kind of be straightforward. All the merits that you could possibly obtain on your own are given to you by faith, or rather by union with Christ, which you yeah. enter into by faith, I suppose. Um, maybe one like way to say it, and I'll let you kind of jump in, is that... Before Calvin, people said, God gives you grace and you could do imperfect works that God would decide to accept. Calvin says, no, God gives you grace to unite to Christ. And because of Christ, God accepts your works, but they're not meritorious. Right. Very similar, but it's a different order, right? Similar in the big picture idea that God accepts imperfect works, but one's prior to union. That's the kind of prior Catholic or a ah, prior Catholic idea. Then Calvin's view after union, your works are accepted because of Christ. 
Yeah. So like going back to the 791, because the, the issue isn't even pertaining to the work itself, right? The issue is pertaining to the person doing them. So like conceivably you could do a perfect work, but because you as a human who is tainted with sin are doing them, the work itself is going to be tainted, right? Even if it's a perfect work. And so what you need then, as you're saying here, as you kind of move on to the 794 thing is that if you're to get works that are not going to have any kind of tainted sin and therefore are acceptable, they have to be works that are actually, you know, Christ's merit that's given to you such that when you do those works, God is accepting them in Christ. And so um, and that alleviates then that problem of even having a perfect work that's going to be done by a tainted person. Um, and so that, that grounds the, the acceptance because he's, he's really concerned here, like of things like being able to boast, right? Like, if, if, if we consider our good works as merit, even as a Christian to do it, we then have grounds for boasting. And he's like, you can't, there is no grounds for boasting right through, even when you yourself are really performing acts of works that are obedience, you're just, you're being obedient. You, you're not, you're not doing anything that you can kind of claim any special acceptance from God through. So then, so then my question would be, so why does the Bible talk about reward? And I think Calvin does get a little bit into that. Yeah, he gets into rewards uh, in here. Now I'm trying to remember where but they're this not is merit. Too. No, they're not there are, there are rewards for good works. Like what in the what's happening there? Yeah, and that's like the gratuitousness of God's grace is that like he he extends you uh, the ability now to perform works that are all grounded in Christ, and so they're nothing that you can boast for or claim. Uh, any kind of acceptance from and then at the end of it then he actually rewards you the way i'm actually i have a book that's coming out um with h and e publishing this year uh called god crowns his own gifts and that's a that's a it's about augustine and august that's a line from augustine right so god grants you all the ability to do everything that you're going to do you have no grounds for boasting none of this is meritorious then at the end of it even though he's the one ultimately doing all the work he rewards you for it <laughs> you know, which is pretty incredible. It's Christ in us working. It's not meritorious, but rather it's a reward. It's this gratuitous picture. Yeah. I think it's, it's, kind all of vital. it's all that participation language again, right? Like right. it's, it's so, you know, on, on 822, because we're in Christ. And then he says here, the use of the term reward is no reason for us to suppose that our works are the cause of our salvation. And then he goes on and talks about them all as being something inherited because of who we are right in the mm -hmm. sun um the sun obviously the christ being the firstborn is the one who obtains the inheritance mm. rewards is grace the next section so i think this is important because if you think during this time a lot of people live their lives okay you get saved by grace but then you're remaining in grace by means of uh gaining more grace so through different sacraments that you would yep. do confession absolution penance and then not only that, but also um, through your cooperative works of grace. Yeah, it's all by the Spirit, all by Christ. But there's a lot of pressure put on you as an individual. Where Calvin is saying, look, justification and sanctification are not at all separated. But once you're justified, once you're in Christ, you do these good works because that's what Christ is doing in you, not because you need to or else you're going to lose your you know, salvation through some mortal or venial or mortal sin or something like that. But it actually makes yeah, it, I think, go on, sorry. No, go ahead. So I think it makes that point out, is it page 811? 
maybe a little bit earlier where he says that there's no way that you can separate uh, 798, sorry. I think it's kind of a useful sentence to read here. On page 798, which is section uh, one of chapter 16, he says uh, in the first full, full paragraph, why then are we justified by faith? Because by faith, we grasp Christ's righteousness by which alone we are reconciled to God. Okay. Then he says, yet you could not grasp this without at the same time grasping sanctification also. For he is given unto us for righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, or redemption, which is a citation of 1 Corinthians 1.30. Then Calvin says, therefore Christ justifies no one whom he does not at the same time sanctify. These benefits are joined together by an everlasting and in, uh, wow, I don't know how to say that word, in this... Dissoluble bond. <laughs> Can you pronounce that word? Indissoluble yeah, bond. You can't, you can't separate it. So I, I think it's useful just kind of make that point that Calvin's not saying you shouldn't do good works or there's no purpose for it. They're actually part of the gift of God, but actually all the merits of Christ are yours by faith. You don't have to worry about gaining more merit. You can just enjoy your life and do good works because that's a gift and an inheritance and all for you. Yeah. Yeah, he'll get into that too, right? Like when when he gets into that really kind of like, there's like, it's almost like psychological near the end uh, when he starts talking about the things indifferent, the adiaphora and how people can really freak out in their legalism, you know? And mm -hmm. he's basically saying your justification, if we have this rightly understood what works are for, why they're not meritorious, how they're grounded in your union with Christ. Uh, uh, you don't have to freak out, right? Like you don't have to, have this kind of like psychological traumatic, psychologically traumatic experience every day of your Christian life, you know, because mm. you can have a real assurance. He's saying, I found the bit too about uh, comfort, um, which I, which I liked, which um, is on uh, 794. Uh, he says, while they, um, and he's referring there to like the, the, the he, he, at the beginning of, se of section seven there on 794, he hammers away at the schools of the Sorbonne and so the Sorbonne was the kind of really conservative cat, like Roman Catholic institution in Paris that his own university was sort of like in conflict with. And he was in conflict with the theologians of the Sorbonne. And, uh, and then he's, so he hammers on them. He hammers on Peter Lombard on 795, uh, the great medieval uh, um, compiler of the sentences. He doesn't like him. He calls him a Pythagoras, a new Pythagoras. And then on 796, he, sa he says, okay, so while they meaning those guys repeatedly inculcate good works. They, in the meantime, so instruct consciences as to discourage all their confidence that God remains kindly disposed and favorable to their works. But we, on the other hand, without reference to merit, still remarkably cheer and comfort the hearts of believers by our teaching when we tell them that they please God in their works and are without a doubt acceptable to him. But here too, we require that no man attempt or go about any work without faith. That is, unless with firm assurance of mind, he first determines that it will please God. So he's saying, yeah, like they're not the grounds of your acceptance, but God still does accept them. And you can feel, feel confident in that. You don't have to have your conscience um, constantly being struck down, um, but rather, yes, like God actually does receive them in you. Why? Because they are done, as he's saying here, in our, in our union, in our participation, in our communion, whatever the language is that he uses it, depending on the time, uh, in Christ. Well, I think even to make it really practical just for today too, to think, but think about it this way. A lot of us really struggle to think, oh, are we, have we truly done a good thing? Did we fail here? We re have regrets and all these things. What Calvin is saying is, yeah, they're all bad. <laughs> None of it's good on its own, 
But whenever you are doing good works with the Spirit, God actually accounts those good works through the Spirit for Christ's sake, not for your sake. Yeah. So every time you think you fail, well, yeah, but it doesn't matter with reference to how God sees it. He still accepts the gift of the effort of good works. It doesn't merit anything. It's all because of Christ. And I think that's a bit freeing because it, it takes us a little bit away from this, this constant cycle of regret and sadness. And why are we not perfect yet? Brother yeah. says, by the Holy Spirit, I will pursue these good things. I can't trust my own heart, but because of Christ, God accepts it. There's two thoughts I have too on this, kind of more like extrapolating uh, from what he's saying there. One is, you know, there's always this kind of accusation against the Reformation that, oh, now you've got this, you know, inward turn towards the subjective, the individual, um, you know, uh, what is that uh, term that's sometimes used of Luther um, is morbid introspection, you know, and those kinds of things. Here, it's like pretty, still pretty objective. Like you don't actually have to have that internal struggle of conscience if you actually really understand what justification is is doing and how it relates to union with Christ. So that that's an interesting uh, uh, point of, of, of like just observation. The second one is it actually then should prove to be a motivator for us in how we deal with other people's imperfections, right? Mm -hmm. So if God can see Christ in our imperfections, we're, we're doing these good works, they're all going to be falter, faulting, um, faltering, sorry, um, and yet nevertheless accepts them in Christ, then didn't, didn't we have that, don't we have that same objective, right? Like is to see, okay, our fellow Christian here is not quite there, but we need right. to be gracious with them because that's how God's dealing with us at every moment of the day. What strikes me at the near, near the end of Romans two, Paul says, um, accept them as Christ accepted you or something mm. to that effect. And yeah, it's more of a, in a theological mode, but if, if Christ, if God accepts our works because of Christ, despite their imperfections, ought we not to accept others too and be a little less nitpicky. I mean, it's kind of the funny story, you know, a guy who graduates from seminary, goes to a pretty good church and then immediately is like, you don't have elders. You've got to change it yep. this second. Yep. Oh, you have one like line on your theology, but you got to change it this second. Uh, instead of yep. maybe, you know, waiting about 10 years as Mark Dever describes, he waited like 10 years before he made any changes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I think this is entirely pastoral rather than it. I mean, some people might look at them like, well, he doesn't he care about the truth. And he cares about people. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think he's a pastor. And, and it's because he is because he actually understands truth that he's able yeah. to actually do that. Well, even yeah. election, I mean, is election an external coercion that just kind of controls and damages your will or does God change how you desire? Yeah. It's the same thing. If you preach the word for 10 years, you're changing people's consciences yeah. according to the word of God. Calvin actually talks about conscience a little bit in this section. Can't remember the exact wording, but the idea is, I think it's something like bound to what, what God is, says is true. Yeah, I think we'll have to double check that. Um, and so I think it's actually really powerful to think through that maybe you don't have to force the change, but you can let the spirit work in and through people's hearts by the word, accepting those imperfect works until they're ready to make the change. Randomly, I'm just remembering, is it 1522 or 23 when Luther comes back to town after hiding on Wartburg? Uh, they're, they're all like trying to like go crazy with reform. He's like, guys, it's okay to have images for a little while. Like we'll preach yeah. the truth. Like, you're just going crazy here. If someone doesn't want to handle the bread, like, just give them a while. Yeah. <laughs> this is a massive change in the way that they're worshiping. And we can be pastors and be, you know, work with their consciences where they're at. 
we don't have to affirm what they're doing is is true, but we can like not push so fast for reform that we ruin the actual people that we're shepherding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, like why let's like jump into to what Calvin says. It's very similar, right? Um, you know, it comes near the end. We could have dealt with it later, but this just seems natural now. You know, when you go to 834, uh, where he, well, really 833, where he starts now to talk about Christian freedom, which obviously relates very closely to Luther's notion of freedom of a Christian man that comes out in, was it 15, 1520 or 1521? Um, the, the three texts that he writes. Um, and so, so Calvin here is talking about like this in relation again, just like Luther to, to justification, right? If you actually really are justified and you understand exactly what that means, you're now free. Like, Luther will say you are the freest of all and yet you're a servant of all because of your justification. Right. right? And so then, um, so Calvin's getting into that. He says, this is a, this is a thing of prime necessity to really understand freedom. And he says, it's an appendage of justification. And then you flip over. He, he says, you can't use your freedom as a pretext to do whatever the heck you want. Um, there are limitations. You don't go into unbridled license um you don't want to think that it's also taking away any kind of moderation and then he articulates the three aspects of christian freedom right um you're free uh in the first sense of your conscience is now free you don't have to fear the law uh and then secondly he gets into uh the second aspect of it is now you actually are free to obey the law and then he gets into the matters of things indifferent uh, on 838 the adiaphora and all those relate back to like conscience issues and, uh, and, you know, kind of tying into like what you're saying here in that, how, you know, uh, we, we can do certain things if we're doing it in a right proper mindset uh, that, uh, you know, like Luther with, Hey, you know, we're not going if, to, if we're not going to completely upend everything here because that pastorally is not going to be helpful. And Calvin's kind of making the same sort of things, right? Like if, if your conscience is free, you can do a lot of things. And I was interested to see um, how he tied it in on 840 to ceremonies, right? Because we usually think of Calvin and, you know, the Puritan Presbyterian kind of like regular principle of worship. If it's not there in scripture, you don't do it. But then he actually says that like you can actually, you are free to do certain things if scripture doesn't go against it. Yeah. Um, you know, and he'll say, for here are included all ceremonies whose observance is optional, uh, that our conscience may not be constrained by any necessity to observe them, but may remember that by God's beneficence, their use is for edification made subject to him. So even in certain religious ceremonies, so like if you think about things like, is it okay? Yeah. Or, you know, or like, can you wear certain clothing and, you, right. you know, as a priest or, what? you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was like, oh, Calvin actually has that there, too. We could call it the they call it the Richard Hooker principle or the um, the normative principle. But it's he seems to be saying that here, you know, that our consciences may not be constrained by any necessity to observe them. But yeah. I mean, remember that by God's beneficence. Their uses for edification. Yeah, I think that's entirely helpful. So you might have some people who feel like they need to live a certain kind of way in their life in order to fulfill whatever they you know think is beneficial in this you know pattern of living. Call it minimalism. Like people are into that today, for example, or whatever it is. Yeah. And like, okay, great. But if you try to tell everyone that they have to live that way uh, and bind their conscience, that's a massive problem for Christian freedom. Yeah. Because where the gospel is, their freedom is also. Yeah, yeah it pushes a, back. It pushes back against any kind of like legalism and uh, 
like legalism, like there's the fine line between legalism and antinomianism, right? Like he, ba he bashes against any kind of antinomianism. Uh, but at the same time, he's not saying that you now have to like follow right. all these strict rules that go beyond what's actually required of us. Right. And uh, like he, he get, I can't remember where he did it. Um, I'm trying to find it, but where he goes through and just lists all these, uh, you know, oh, here it is. It's on 839, I think. Uh, he says, these, uh, but these matters are more important than is commonly believed. For when consciences once ensnare themselves, they enter a long and inextricable maze, not easy to get out of. If a man begins to doubt whether he may, and this is, some of these are kind of amusing. If a man begins to doubt whether he may use linen sheets, shirts, handkerchiefs, and napkins, he will afterward be uncertain also about hemp. So Calvin's pro-cannabis. Yep. Uh, you heard it finally, here. <laughs> he says, finally, doubt will even arise over tau, which I don't even know what that is. Uh, for he will turn over in his mind whether he can sup without napkins or go without a handkerchief. If any man should consider daintier food unlawful, in the end, he will not be at peace before God when he eats either black bread or common victuals, while it occurs to him that he could sustain his body on even coarser foods. If he boggles at sweet wine, so Calvin's good with wine, uh, he will not with clear conscience drink even flat wine. And finally, he will not dare touch water if sweeter and cleaner than other water. And he says, to sum up, he will come to the point of considering it wrong to step on a straw across his back, as the saying goes. Right? So, this like, is actually pretty wise, so isn't it? So wrapped up in legalism that yeah. you just you can't live anymore. You know, yeah. where's the freedom in that? I even just kind of picked up on it, and I know it's a little bit out of context next to Daniel Food. Just some of the ideas we're trying to restore masculinity, femininity, and we have all these patterns. You need to live like this. And you're like, yeah. maybe. <laughs> yeah. But it follow ends up Joe we, Rogan, follow Jocko Willink. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Coggins, There's all these that patterns stuff. that are maybe good examples, generally speaking, but are not necessary for all people. And yeah. we can fall in the trap that we're, if we fail to be like them, we're not truly whatever. Yeah. I also think it's interesting. This is kind of I was thinking about this earlier about this Christian freedom idea. Even Paul talking about marriage and divorce in first Corinthians seven, says if an unbelieving spouse leaves you're free yeah. you're not bound and so that even marriage which we would i'd probably say normatively marriage isn't uh you can't dissolve that bond it's there forever yeah. there is a it's real indissoluble indissoluble <laughs> that word uh it's a uh, that thing that we're talking about and i just i just find it interesting though like there's a real sense of freedom i don't think he suspends ethics or something crazy like that this no. normative true, but if someone does leave, there's a sense of freedom that Paul gives to, to a spouse who can't change anything. And I, I don't know, I think we need to be a little bit careful. I was talking about this uh, with a group of people yesterday, that you should always marry a believer. So what, but what happens if you have two people who live together for 10 years with a family, three or four kids, and they're committed to one another? Like, what do you say to them? Sorry, yeah. mommy and daddy can't live together anymore and can never marry because mom became a Christian. Right. Like, I don't really have the answer. I'm not saying I know that, but uh, I mean, Martin Luther says it's okay to marry an unbeliever, but I don't. Luther is interesting. I mean, he, he was also okay with Philip of Hesse's bigamy. So yeah, I think we have to be careful when we cite Martin Luther because uh, he has a lot of views that are but odd. We can be, we can, if we really understand him, I think. And if we're careful with him, yeah. you know, um, I, I see, I don't endorse, but I see what him and Melanchthon were doing with that, with that situation. You know, because Philip has married his first wife out of purely out of political convenience. And they're just like, yeah, like, 
we get it. That was a political alliance. It wasn't really a marriage. So yeah, marry the woman you love. I'm like, I don't, I don't endorse that, but at least I understand why they were doing it. It wasn't just like, yeah, marry as many women as you want. You're a, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're in a fallen world, and there's maybe a you know best of a bad situation. Um, it, like think about it like this, right? You're a missionary, and you're in a in a culture that's polygamous, and some guy gets saved, and he's got two wives. Are you going to say to him, okay, now get rid of one of them. Find the one you really like and get rid of the other one. You, like, Especially well, if you have just... kids from both, right? Yeah, you have kids from both. And if you're in it, you're, likely that kind of society means that if the second wife, she gets turned out, she's done for, man. Like, right. There's no way. Nobody's going to marry her. She's not going to have a living. So right. like, you basically, in that context, kind of have to permit polygamy, you know, which under any circumstance, otherwise, right. you would never do. So Yeah, yeah I mean, I don't. I think here I don't want to have definitive answers, but I do think there's something about Christian freedom that lets us be pastors yeah. in the most difficult situations, even when there's not a specific um, legal regulation, if right. that follows. Yeah. And I think that's maybe prudence, a- prudence is really, really in the front right. of all of this, right? Like, how do you govern? How do you navigate this? Why, why, why we need natural law to come back? Because... <laughs> We well, it's always been out. there. We just need to always recognize. We just need to recognize. Right. It. It's always <laughs> yeah, been there, but we need to recognize that we, in fact, can use it. So I was talking about this game yesterday. Like, if we're going to be able to criticize, say, the government or whatever, we can't criticize them with the gospel if they're not believers. They don't believe right. in the gospel. We can say that they need to. But in fact, natural law is that common ground that all of us, by definition, must know as a standard because God is true and he created creation as an effect of who he is if that's yep. the case the natural law must be a part of creation it must be publicly accessible to some degree even if you maybe sear your conscience and whatever all those caveats yep. uh is there anything else we want to say before we shut down today we've been at roughly a half an hour and i think we kind of made our way through at least this section yeah yeah oh, man i mean there's so much stuff right like there's james i like there's Hebrews, yeah there's like the paul and james stuff i liked in there that was kind of helpful that they're obviously not in conflict i mean we know this but it's just good to see the way he articulated it i like the stuff too in terms of like our obedience on 837 on the a joyous obedience is to a father who really like looks upon us with care it's like when, mm-hmm. my, when i see my son and his faltering obedience is but i see he's trying um, I have a fatherly compassion on him and I want to accept that even in all of its imperfections. Right. So it's like, we're, it's the this, this servant or slave versus son sort of thing. And uh, you know, this, he says, uh, these servants think they've accomplished nothing and dare not appear before their masters unless they, they fulfill the, the exact measure of their tasks. But sons who are more generously and candidly treated by their fathers do not hesitate to offer them in, and then incomplete and have done and even defective works trusting that their obedience and readiness of mind will be accepted by their fathers even though they have not quite achieved what their fathers intended i like that you know i just i like how he sees especially it's especially interesting because calvin wasn't he had a son um with his wife idolette de boer but then the son died uh fairly early if i recall correctly and yet you know i mean he did he left his brother moved in with him and his brother had been divorced and uh and had some kids and so calvin had kids around him but like you know, he didn't have the proper long-term experience of being a father. And yet there's this kind of fatherly tenderly, t- tenderness that he recognizes here that was really cool. I'll just read one sentence on the same area right above the Malachi citation. So such children ought we to be firmly trusting that our services will be approved by our most merciful father, however small, rude, and imperfect these may be. 
So it strikes me is that if you're a good father or a good son with a good father, however that works, you're really going to understand how God sees you. I think by analogy, at least like what, like for me, if let's say, let's assume that I'm a loving father, (laughs) my five-year-old comes and makes a mistake and tells me or works or uh, does a craft, but does it imperfectly. I'm always going to accept it, right? Like I'm always going to cheerfully, joyously accept it. I'm not going to hold it against her, all this kind of stuff, right? That, that's actually how we ought to look at our Heavenly Father. Now, if you don't have a good father, and it's a bad situation, that's hard to conceive of. But in a good father-child relationship, I mean, that's such an important analogy. I mean, Paul says yeah. in Ephesians that like, look, fathers aren't like, um, like, we don't see fathers and then say, oh, God is like a father. The opposite is true. God is first a father. And then he created yeah. fathers and sons to image that eternal relation yeah. or families of God, I guess is more accurate in Paul's language. Me- meaning uh, you should always think about a good father child relationship is similar by analogy only to how God views us. And yeah. that's so freeing. So that's, that so means freeing. like when you make a mistake or if you're imperfect or if you sin, instead of like, Oh no, it's like, well, what would you do if your two-year-old came up to you and like, I don't know, use the crayon on the table instead of the paper. Like you're not going to like right. hate the two-year-old forever. <laughs> Yeah, you're done for, boy. <laughs> you're done for, out of the house. <laughs> uh, anyways, I, I find that to be a very freeing way to understand God. And Kelvin does too. Remember in Providence when he said that Providence is basically God's fatherly care of creation? Yeah. So the idea of fatherhood, and again, with reiterate, reiterate, a good father is so important. Well, with that said, I think we can maybe shut down our time. Yeah, we, we finished here spot on to end. chapter 19. Uh, next mm-hmm. week... We'll do a chapter 20, which is in the second volume. Uh, so, and then, yeah, we have, we're getting pretty close. We're, we've done more than is left in terms of uh, weeks of reading. So crazy. we should be able to finish this year. By the we'll rate have, we're going, we'll be done in like three years. So yeah, we'll be done in three years. <laughs> nonetheless, we'll at one point be done John Calvin's Institutes. Thanks, Ian. We'll see you guys next week. I feel like this is an accomplishment.